theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hello, Dr. Amy. Hello, Dr. Joy. How are you today? I am doing wonderful and happy to have this conversation that we're going to have about school counselors. Well, and it's an appropriate time to be having these conversations. Uh -huh because there is such a huge need for school counseling, but we've also seen a shift in the type of preparation that school counselors are receiving and have been receiving over the past several years. Absolutely. You know, oftentimes we talk about teachers. There's such an emphasis on teachers and the many hats that teachers wear, teacher burnout, teacher retention. But counselors, they deal with the same challenges, right? And they have to wear so many hats and there's so many variables that go into what type of counselor and their responsibilities at different schools. So there has been, you're absolutely right, there has been a shift in how counselors perform. And the other thing that I don't think gets enough attention is the type of collaboration that can happen between counselors and teachers and between counselors, teachers, and other support personnel at the school. And we're all in it for the students. So the better wraparound services we can have yep. for the students, the more successful they will be. And the better the collaboration as opposed to a handoff, the better collaboration, the better the child can be served or adult, because we're talking about counseling from K-16, P-12 counselors, as well as counselors at the university level. Well, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Carlton Brown, who is currently the School Counselor Program Coordinator, Clinical Coordinator, and Educator in the Educational Psychology and Special Services Department of the College of Education at the University of Texas at El Paso. Dr. Brown has been a certified school counselor for more than a decade. He is certified in the state of Texas and Arkansas. His experience as a school counselor includes elementary, middle, and high school levels. He is also a licensed professional counselor national certified counselor and board member of the National School Counseling Evidence-Based Council. His experience in counseling includes all ages. However, his primary population has been pre-K through college level students. He has also served in several leadership positions with the profession of counseling, including board member of the Texas School Counselor Association, 
and president of the largest counseling association in the state of Arkansas. So I'm looking forward to hearing about your other leadership roles and your past and what brought you to this stage in the game. Dr. Brown, welcome to our podcast. Welcome. He is all of that and a bag of chips. I'm going to say it correctly, Dr. Carleton Brown. I'm going to make your mother proud. <laughs> I love it. And I love your background for our listeners. I know you can't see his background, but I'm looking at a background, beautiful, have word big, smile, laugh, love, happy, and it's making me happy right now. So thank you for being here. We're honored to have you today. Well, thank you for having me. Hopefully you can hear me. This is my first time yeah. using this this headphone set. It's a pleasure to be here and to be invited here to, to speak to your listeners and, and talk to you two wonderful individuals I just got a chance to meet about a week ago. Yeah, happy to have you. Let's Let's get into it. You're like Amy and I, we, you know, we started in a K-12 environment, middle school, <laughs> and now we're in higher ed, higher ed, and you made a similar transition. Can you talk about your earliest experience in being a professional educator, being a school counselor, and also talk about that shift in going from P-12 to college level? Sure. For me, uh, interesting enough, I my parents were educators. My father taught agriculture science. He was a high school teacher. And my mother, she was in, she was an English teacher. She taught at the community college. She also became a school counselor, was school counselor for a number of years. So she was in education for over 50 years. And so with that background, of course, you know, my first thought was, I'm not going to become a teacher. <laughs> That was my initial idea. I said, you guys yeah. don't make enough money. This is no way. And, you know, I did initially go into the corporate world. I worked with um, computers as a data administrator early on. And I was just bored to death. And I got an opportunity to mentor kids through a program, the elementary level, and then, you know, at, at different levels. And the administrators said, well, you should become a teacher. And so, I was like, I'm not going to be able to fight this. I, it's something about teaching that just people keep just seeing me over and over again. I had professors tell me that all of that. So I went back, got my master's degree in teaching. And sure enough, I started off as a as an English teacher. The very thing I said I wasn't going to do. <laughs> I hear and, <laughs> and eventually that led into actually school counseling as well, working with students uh, with their poetry, working with them on several different after-school programs. I used to have a, a slam poetry contest and all of this different stuff. I used to do a lot of stuff. Believe it or not, like I said, your listeners can't hear you. But yeah, my hair right now is, is bald-headed. But at that moment, I had long dreadlocks and I had that look <laughs> like this poetic person and doing poems and stuff. So I was really oh, into it. It was, a, it was a vibe. Was Did you have vibe. an earring too? I, you know, I, I had an earring when I was younger. <laughs> And my family members and church members and say, you shouldn't do that. You know, that was during that time. So I said, okay, <laughs> being respectful, I'm going to take it out. But, but yeah, I was, I was that person at that point. And uh, <laughs> the students had such a need. I mean, students who were, would, would, I, I would get home real late and they had such a need. And I just, you know, had this strong desire to go into 
into school counseling. And I already had administrators said, if you go into it, we will hire you as a school counselor. So it's like I, one of those situations, like I have no choice. I need to, you know, go this route. And so, and so I did. I did an internship at the high school level. I got to work at high school level. Got to work at middle school school counselor. I got to work as an elementary school counselor. But I started at the secondary. To answer your other question, when I went down to uh, or went to the lower level of elementary, it was definitely a shock for me. The, the, it was kind of like, I don't know if your listeners remember uh, kindergarten cop on a short and you go into that room and all the kids are running around. Yeah, yeah. My first day was like this. <laughs> I went in as a school counselor. The teacher left. and I said, where are you going? <laughs> and the kids were running around and they were grabbing me. And of course, I look huge because I'm almost 6'2". And so I looked like a giant, the only male teacher or school counselor in the building. So it was definitely an interesting uh, experience that I learned to, to grow into love. And it eventually was kind of urged into leadership really quickly and recruited to go into the doctoral program, which will lead, you know, eventually led me to be president of Arkansas Counseling Association at the time, was the, the largest counseling association in the state. And so I went from there to, you know, becoming a professor and uh, yeah, and that's kind of, kind of how I made my way through that trajectory. I find it really interesting your discussion about your starting point as an English teacher and how you saw the need. And it's, it's what I tell my English candidates. You are going to be privy to journal entries and more personal narratives than perhaps the science teacher or the math teacher will be. And, and it sounds like you responded to that. You saw the need and you took that and went in that direction of counseling. And I'm wondering, because you mentioned that your mother was a counselor as well. So how has school counselor preparation changed and evolved since you remember your mother as a counselor? What has changed in the type of preparation now that you're in counselor preparation role? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's been a lot of change because the field is is still fairly new, in my opinion. I mean, it's started in the early 1900s. It wasn't very structured at that time. It's just individuals who were teachers or even principals setting additional time to do what we call vocational counseling at the time. So, you know, helping individuals find their place in post-secondary environment. What are you going to do, you know, at high school? What kind of job can you get? That type of thing. But yeah, by the time my mother decides to go into to get her second master's in that one in, in counseling, there was a heavy focus on psychology. And so at that point, she thought she would really get to work with students from a psychological point of view. And as a school counselor, she would work at alternative school and elementary school as school counselor. And, and she found herself really in that uh, student services model where she was sitting and wait on individuals who were in need to come to her office and to serve her. I mean, and she would serve them and she would have this caseload, you know, of students that she worked with. But by the 80s, there was something about that academic accountability that was put on the shoulders of principals. And in her words, the principals start forming out these duties to her that was more administrative in nature. And you can see that the role was beginning to change. Now, in the background of that, you got 
organizations like uh, you know American School Counseling Associations that are working also. They're saying this need that this guy thing has to be a little bit more structured. And so those things led into this developmental guidance model that focuses on individual planning, uh, responsive services, guidance curriculum, system support, those type of things. And and even within that, you know, by the time I I got into the into this profession, it it began to be a little bit more comprehensive in nature. So now you have those components still, but it's more defined. You have this foundational point, uh, you know, aspect to it. You have this management. How do you manage this this program? Because often school counselors look at as managing support services, like it's an entire support services are individuals such as social workers and uh, psychology, all those individuals that help, you know, support the education outside of being a teacher. And so this became very critical, but again, it was more comprehensive in nature. So I've lived through this 2002, 2000 version of ASCA model. Right. And then it evolved to the, I think, 2012, third edition. And in 2019, there's a, you know, fourth edition. And so some of the language has changed, but there's always been growth depending on what's happening in the field at the time, you know, changes in education, like we've just had, you know, pandemic, those type of things. So we're probably going to have another model come back in a few years as well. So it's a constantly moving field. That's good that the practices are evolving because, you know, our issues are evolving. I want, I want to talk, continue to talk more about ASCA, American School Counseling Association, mindsets and behavior, which we talked about last time, are organized into three broad domains, academic, career, and social emotional. So these domains promote mindsets and behaviors that enhance the learning process, right? And creates a culture of college and career readiness for all students. I can recall when I was working with one urban school district who really was the lowest performing school district in the state. So I'm not gonna say the name of the school district and introducing the ASPA model and this may have been seven years ago. And of course, we know the ASCA model has been around longer than that, but trying to get them to implement it. And here's some of the challenges they talked about, because we talk about that academic career and social emotional. It seems like counseling is not equal in all schools. And, and let's take high school, for example, because you've been at all levels where I've seen some counselors act as advisors, right? I've seen some act as mental health providers, which is what they were acting as in at this particular district. And then some were, you know, all the kids saw the counselors because they were college bound. You know, my son went to a high school and that's pretty much all the counselors did. It was like, let me help you with your application. Let me help you get into college, you know, calling the kids out of the classroom. And rarely did they spend time with mental health issues because those parents, he went to a private high school because those, listen to me, those parents, I wasn't part of <laughs> Those parents had enough money where they had, they could afford counseling outside of school. So they weren't going to bring their business into the school. So they didn't need the school counselor for that. They needed the school counselor to get their kid into college. But other counselors like this one district that I'm speaking of, It was like an emergency trauma every day. And trying to get kids into college was the last thing 
that was on their list. So can you talk about some of the best practices framework for counseling and how schools kind of, you know, manage these three domains? Yeah, so you, you have this highly qualified as the term used to be used. I think that was on the Bush president, President Bush administration. I was under Bush. I still use it <laughs> in lower case, it still has meaning, doesn't it? As a, as a common noun, it still has meaning. Right. I mean, it highly qualified professional in your building. And oftentimes they're used to fill in gaps of services that the school is lacking. They're most likely lacking in other other assistance, you know, schools that don't have full assistant principals, for instance. So, for instance, a school counselor may have to fill in in terms of helping with discipline and and things of that nature. Well, that's not what that highly qualified person was trying to do, but they're often filling out these gaps. That's honestly got to look at leadership of do I have the right staff? Am I looking at the right areas and all these new things that are coming up. Why am I sending my counselor to do registration? Do I have a register? You know, uh, that type of thing. And so you have these, this highly qualified professional not doing the things that they were trained to do. Get that opportunity, that person the opportunity to do that. And you'll see these schools, you see a change in schools and in students and in the services that are being provided that are extremely beneficial to all students, not just some students. And that's been the hope and the goal to reshape and re-educate individuals on this role as a school counselor. Because the, like I said, the school counselor profession, where the school counselor educators, where as advocates, where as the individuals at the association level, et cetera, has always put student first and tried to increase the education and knowledge of the school counselor. But that doesn't always equate when we go out into the field. And one of the things that we've looked at and always discussed is the student to school counselor ratio, for instance. If it's one school counselor to 250 students, we think that's an ideal situation where a school counselor can meet the needs of, of all those students through a comprehensive school counseling program. So, and when you think about it from a program point of view, it's not the student service model where I, as an individual, I'm the only one doing all the work, but it's a lot of collaboration. It's a lot of coordination. It's a lot of advocacy. It's a lot of system support, being a change agent, all of these things within that program that makes it beneficial. So we have these schools where you got 800 students to one school counselor and expecting the school counselor to do all of those things from what they've been trained to do and then all of these outside things as well. And so the school counselor is saying, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. So then they're looking at their supervisor and the supervisor said, well, then you do this, this and, and, you know, and that. And so this is kind of the heart of the situation. And I spoke earlier, I talked about my mother from the 1970s on. That situation started a long time ago and we're still wrestling with that with certain with certain schools. But fortunately enough, we do and we have identified, American School Council Association has identified these schools who've done a great job of setting up their school counseling program. And there, these, these schools are recognized publicly. And we even have, well, we have these school counselors of the year, you know, recognized through like 
Mrs. Michelle Obama start recognizing these school counselors in the work that they're doing. So there has been some movement, some very positive movement. We have students out of our program who've gone and gotten this recognition as well. And so it's beautiful to see that change and see those changes, especially in not just these well-to-do communities, but these communities that really need it. And so I'm excited about that and the change that's happening as we do more and more education. We have more opportunities to talk about school counseling and its importance and, and avenues and, and places like this where people are hearing that there's more to the school counselor than meets the eye. So yeah, that's kind of my take on that. I want to return to what you were talking about, about the changes and the shifts. And I want to ask, what do you see as the biggest shift or change in the most recent edition of the ASCA model that you said was around 2019? But also, what do you think is coming next? Because you also alluded to, well, the pandemic and the social unrest, it, it could lead to some other changes. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, in the model itself, there's changes in language to help meet the changes in education language that has been going on. This was before the pandemic. President Obama was talking about going from the no child left behind to more student success centered language and leaving into local communities to come up with some programs to help their students and things of that nature. So the model helps to go into that into that type of language. Instead of using, for instance, the word foundation or using nouns to describe things, we use verbs to, make, to, to show that it's, it's, it's forward moving. Instead of using words that may perceive negatively, like accountability, we say assess, you know, to make it more, you know, user-friendly and, and pleasing to other people's, you know, that, that, that hear it outside of our, our program and practitioners as well. One of the major changes is those standards that were mentioned earlier, I think, and that, you know, the ask us mindsets and behaviors, you've gone from what's similar to like, as a teacher, you have these standards you teach to, and they seems real dry. It's like, okay, I need to teach to this, you know, you have this sentence, students will do blah, 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 et cetera, to more of, instead of telling students or teaching to the standards, let's create a way of thinking, a way that students think about this. Instead of saying, you have to learn this, you have to do this, you have to do this, but here's a way of being, modeling that and implementing that in our interventions and things of that nature, so that this is, you're basically encouraging this lifelong learner type idea, and it's not just about academics, but it's also social emotion. It's not just that I'm going to be this, but maybe there's a lot of different things I could do, you know, mm -hmm. post-secondary. So it's just change in mentality. That's a huge change and shift that has happened in the, in the 2019 model. Now, going forward, if you would ask me in 2017, which someone did, I said, there's going to be a, a fourth edition, right? I'm saying right now, there's going to be a fifth edition. <laughs> and I say that because all I got to do is look at all the things that have happened since 2019. I mean, just a year later, we're into a pandemic. And now these issues of trauma, you hear that word far more common than you heard it before. So this idea of trauma-informed schools, this idea of even virtual learning, you know, it's more, it's, it's more of a thing than it has been in the past where you may have called it, heard it called distance learning. And so there's a shift in so many different things that 
my guess, not that I'm an insider that I already know, I'm just looking at the trajectory of what's going on in the field, is that there's going to be another model at some point that says, hey, we have to include these things as well. One of the conversations I have to say in research is social justice. Mm-hmm. I'm talking a little bit more about social justice, uh, multicultural competencies and things of that nature. My bet is that's going to be in, in addition a whole nother thing in the model as well. So yeah, you can see the times and the field has always kind of responded to the times, which I, I think is very impressive. And so that's the way I see things going. More of a social justice event, more of trauma-informed, how do we have these trauma-informed schools? How do we include that in the in our comprehensive program type thing? So that's kind of kind of my view on that. Right. And, and more restorative justice, too. Exactly. We're exactly. seeing that, that shift as well. We were talking about, you know, how I come to know you is like from your article about school shooting and trauma, you know, in light of the recent societal trauma, you know, the school shootings, Black Lives Matter issues, deaths due to COVID. So many kids were impacted. So many grandparents were lost and kids dealing with identities now, even at an early age things that we didn't see before, just wondering, you know, how counselors stay current? How do they expand their knowledge as these things come up? What is the support for counselors? I I just had a a school social worker. She just finished a program. Very excited that she got a job offer right away. And then she was afraid because unlike teachers, I got lots of teachers around me. I mean, I could choose to use them for resources or not. (laughs) You know, sometimes not is better too, but they're there, right? And there's a lot to learn from other teachers. You say, go look at this person, let's model after them. Or, you know, there's different things that you can learn what to do and what not to do from other teachers. But oftentimes with a counselor, you might be the only school counselor at that particular school. So, so where do, how do counselors typically expand their knowledge to keep up with the most recent best practices? Where do they get their support from? Really good question, especially for new, new school counselors that are out there. I think my research is in leadership supervision and advocacy with a particular focuses on, on school counselors. And the reason why that is, is, is because the continuity. A lot of that continuity, I think, is so important in the field. And we needed to do a lot more work, for instance, on supervision. Basically, those ideas of the individuals doing gatekeeping, the school counselor educators, uh, supervisors, those type of individuals, including leadership associations and those and the like, because those are the places where the big push in moving our, 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 our field forward really comes more vocal or vocalized. And those individuals and those entities really need the participation of those practitioners in the field. So it works both ways to be able to inform them. So for instance, as a school counselor educator, as a program coordinator for school counseling at my university, I can't just go on my experience, because my experience has been a while ago. And so one of the things that we did was go around and do these, have these little, these little groups that come in and tell us where we get groups 
of parents, we get groups of administrators, we get groups of, of teachers, uh, we get groups of school counselors, of course, and we ask them about whether they see what's going on in the field right now in the region as active practitioners in the field right now. We take that feedback and we just did this, for instance, maybe five months ago, and we try to do this often. We take that feedback and then we have an advisory board of, 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 of district leaders. We ask them the similar questions. We take that feedback and then we infuse it into our program. And for our program, for instance, it just changes from a 48-hour to a 60-hour program. We added more tier two interventions, focus on trauma, focus on, on all of these things that we're hearing that's going on. We decided to do a big project of collaboration because we see that's a big missing piece, collaboration between school counselors and special education teachers that hasn't been done as well for some reason over, over the last few years. And so we have those group of students taking courses together and learning MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support, and how they work together, use their expertise together to help those students. Not only the students who are in a general population, but those students with disabilities and higher level disabilities, we see a rise in that as well, at least in our region. And so starting with at, at my level, from my own experience, this is how I'm an example of how we move the, the, the field forward. But as a, there are different me's all across, you know, United States and different areas who see the same call. And so you're reaching out and trying to do that, that type of work. And then you have the associations where pra even practitioners go and they present new things that they're doing, practitioner research type projects that they're doing and sharing them across. And so these, these type of meetings, these type of get togethers, these being involved in the state level, state association, federal association, staying connected to your university, staying connected to these leaders in the fields, even the site supervisors who are getting these new trainings and how to work with interns, et cetera. Those are the type of things that have moved our, I believe, have moved our, our field forward. And we continue to get good people, people who want to do this, this work and see that as meaningful. I think we would continue to move forward each time that we need to do so. You know. Right. It's per you're the perfect person for this position. Someone who's been there at every level that you can share with now your pre-service school counselors how to navigate this. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. We are talking to Dr. Carlton Brown about school counseling preparation. And I'm really interested. I want to go back to what you said about adding credit hours. And that can be overwhelming for someone going into a program like, wow, 60 credit hours. But you also talked about the advisory board and what people are saying they need. What was essential to add to your program that helped your candidates be more prepared to walk into a school setting? What were the essential elements that you said, we have to add hours? There's no way we can just revise a course. Well, one of the things is just getting a more exposure to clinical experience, additional training for, like I said, the site supervisors. These are the school counselors in the school who take on interns and work with them. I think it felt like this was critical because, you know, you think about it from a doctor's point of view or someone else who goes in and they're training and they do a residency 
for a long period of time and then they get out of that resident and they become the doctor you know somebody who's who um you know as a client or patient you have to put all your trust in right similar we we want to make sure we had enough clinical hours students were exposed to enough clinical hours where they can feel comfortable working with challenging students under supervision that's uh, and we have several layers of that, that supervision. We have an instructor who's the faculty supervisor. We have a field supervisor who we can hire who just does observations. And then you have that school counselor who's a supervisor as well. And so we wanted to increase the supervision. We wanted to add more exposure. So our school counselors, for instance, are not just going to go into the general population, but we're going to go in those those units and those special education uh, cl uh, classes, et cetera, and, and, and see how do we collaborate and work with others and help students in there. Especially we see a rise, for instance, in students with ADHD and other students, how do we help those students? And so we increase that, those trauma-informed interventions and those type of things in our program too. Uh, so more exposure in the clinical, increased supervision, more interventions we wanted to include, and more experiential, experiential, experiential yeah, uh, activities as well. And, and, you know, exposing them to some leadership opportunities as well. We felt like these were very critical. In a sense, I'm using what I call educanese words. I'm using uh, these education words. But, of course, parents are just saying, you know, plain and simple. Yeah, we, we don't get to see the school counselor about this. We were working with this person. They didn't even know that, that this person was working with my child, you know. So we hear that and we say, oh, we need to do better in collaboration. So I'm using these words, these kind of trigger words, but you know, for parents and, and for laymen, they they they're just saying help, you know, in the simplest way. And so I take that as an educator and say, this is kind of how we could do it from our point of view. Yeah. And I'll oh, go ahead, Amy. Well, and I I wanted to to hit that a little bit. And and push that conversation about collaboration. We talk about it as just a natural, uh, it's terminology that we use con consistently and a lot, but what does that mean? Like, what does it look like to have a collaboration that best meets students' needs? How do we prepare candidates for this and sometimes it can be a very nebulous term. It's education-ease uh, type of collaboration. It's a soft skill, uh, we might call it, in marketing or in business terms. But what is it? What, what might a parent see or a teacher see when there is good collaboration happening with a school counselor? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that we did have to really think about and had to ask people about, even the parents and others. And, you know, this is kind of based on all of that information feedback we got and my own experience. The way I see it is, first of all, we keep the student in mind. You know, keep that's that's number one. The work that we're doing has to benefit the student. And so when you keep that in mind, then it's not that we are part of helping the student, which a lot of people, that's where we say collaboration. Okay, so you're, as a teacher, you're doing your part, and as school counselor, I'm doing my part, but we actually work in sync. 
in helping this student. So how does my skills as a counselor help support you as a teacher? In other words, our work is is almost seamless. Like you can't can't even see us, you know, helping this student without knowing that there there's more than one person, you know, doing that type of support. And so as a parent, if I come in, I want to know what's the social emotional learning, what, what what is my students getting from a social point emotional point of view? Where is my student getting from a career point of view? The teacher should be able to explain exactly what the school counselor is doing and how that teacher works with the school counselor to do it. And and vice versa. If you know a parent came to the school counselor complaining about the teacher and say, hey, this is what the teacher does to help your child. And I work with that teacher to help your child in terms of academics in this way. There's some seamless type of uh, uh, interaction or integration and what we call at higher education level, interdisciplinary work that's going on that's hard to break, break apart and see you as silos, see you as you do this and then I do that. No, we work together on behalf of the student. That's just what we do. On almost a daily basis, we meet, we talk, we have, we convert, we, we have conversations about our students' plan around how to work with students. We, you know, those type of things. My school counselor are in those PL meetings and all those different things. We're there. And so we just work together as a unit versus we work in silos. So that's kind of as as what I said earlier, as as we work, instead of saying we work as part of the work that we do with students, we actually work together and working on behalf of the students. So we know that there's a lot of research that shows the benefits of counseling and school counseling. My children, you know, are products of good counseling. And so we know that there is a strong need, not just for counselors, for good counselors using these best practices, but having the space to be able to do so, right? Having the resources to be able to do so. So I'm wondering, all the things we learned from COVID, you know, like what did we learn from COVID? What was counseling like during COVID when you couldn't see kids? And how much when we have these traumatic events, does it take away from the other things that counselors should be doing? You know, because we know the effects. If you have a good counselor and they're focused on these domains, we can see that relationship between the number of students that might go successfully go to college, right? We can, we can see a correlation between the two. So when a counselor starts having to spend time on other things, some things because of the school dynamics, but some of it that's out of their control, like all these traumatic events that's external from the school that enter your school, how much does that impact the academic and the career aspect of counseling, the outcomes. You know, I, I pride myself as being a very authentic person. That means I, I, I get, I'm, I'm completely honest. I try to be, always be completely honest. Yeah, and you and, wrote the book on trauma and school shooting. You wrote <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I, I, I believe that we still don't know the complete impact on a generation at this point. And I know that's not the, the answer that people want to hear, but I feel like that's the true answer that what we've gone through is definitely a, a shift and, and it's a generational shift. It's a, it's a global shift. It's a big shift and, and in our own humanity and in, in, in the way we live, the way we breathe or, you know, 
And people may say, well, he's being overdramatic. When you think about, we have conversations about masks, right? Should we be wearing masks? We didn't used to have that type of conversation in the United States. We've gone through a huge, huge shift. And so to say that, you know, well, this is the impact and this is what we do about it at this point, I think is, is a bit premature. We have to continue to ask that question and continue to work with the answers that we have right now. And I don't think we have the solution. We just have to keep doing the work. And, and that's what happens in, 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 in huge shifts. We have to continue to investigate, continue to research, let that research inform our decisions. And, and then it's, it, there's a lot of hope for the best, particularly for, for, our, for our students, the students who go through this. And, and I like to say for the parents too. Uh, I mean, this is all new for everyone. And then the profession, you know, we had this idea of the, the great resonation Mm-hmm. professionals have changed they, they they looked at and this is definitely impacted professions where people have said you know what i'm going to go to a different career i'm going to do something different so we it, it, we're still looking at that right we're still looking at that yeah. i appreciate yeah. the honesty you know because teachers they came back and they were like oh these students regress you know what what is going on and we're, you know, teachers, all educators are still trying to figure it out um, and get back to somewhat, I won't even say normal, but just get to a different path of achievement. Yeah, we're definitely in a new norm and we don't even know what that is. <laughs> right. And I like what you're saying that it is a new normal. We can't think, well, when will it get back to normal? Nothing will ever be the same as it was in 2019 never again so if we can kind of shift our mindset and think from here forward i think we'll be doing ourselves a a great service and as we approach this next school year i wonder if you might suggest something uh, some tips or strategies for teachers and counselors as they get this school year started? Anything you can offer? You know, I offer the same thing. I was asked this question a year ago when school started uh, and I offer the same type of, of, of ideas or thoughts. And that's to enter this space with grace, mercy, and love and kindness. Like expecting people to just bounce back from this. Although I do think our students and I think as a society, we've been extremely resilient. But I don't think, like you said, we go back to where we were, expecting students to go back to where they were, expecting teachers to go back to the type of people they were. I think that's that's not a fair expectation. And just to go in with an open mind, with some grace, with some mercy, give people time to to figure out what they're, you know, how to get their, their feet settled, give teachers time still. And people say, well, you said that last year, how much time they need? They still need time. <laughs> I think we still, like I said, are figuring things out and, and working with uh, with students, being careful about those accountability measures, those testings and those type of things. And what does test mean? A lot of states continue to do testing throughout the pandemic. And I'm like, what does those results mean? What are you going to do with that? How are you trying to define students in that way and just saying, be cautious and, you know, in, in, in doing those type of things. And so and then reminding ourselves again of our humanity in terms of that love and kindness, 
to be kind, even to those students who are have these extraordinary behavioral disruptions. Right. Uh, and maybe they didn't have that before and now they have it. And you're like, what is going on? What happened to, to Johnny? You know, that type of thing. Well, who knows at this point until, you know, someone shares who knows what happens to Johnny, but we need to try to help Johnny as much as possible. So those are the three things I, you know, I say, you know, grace, mercy, love, and kindness, being a little bit open-minded because there are a lot of resources out there. Right. But I think even though you're taking advantage of those resources to help others, I just think that's the type of mentality we got to have going forward. And we have to do that, you know, in the upcoming years, because we're not sure exactly what we're dealing with. Right. I just love how you phrase that and give it love and mercy spoken like a true counselor. I just want to know from you, this is my final question for you. As you transition to higher ed, how do you feel now that you're on the other side, you're involved in preparation and, and what do you hope to get out of that? What, what do you want to leave as your legacy and preparing candidates? Well, you know, uh, you all know, but of course your listeners don't know. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to see my mother take her last breath a few years, a few weeks ago. And uh, it was a very touching moment. And I often, I was her caretaker for several months. Uh, it was reminded of how she took care of me uh, and how that cycle has gone through. But she was also my biggest inf- inspiration if you really listen to how I got into this field and those type of things. So my biggest thing was always to make her proud, you know, and I know if I was doing that, I was doing something right because she she would say, treat everybody's right, love everyone, enjoy your life. And if you're doing that and doing everything you do with love, then the legacy will take care of itself. So that's the way, that's what I want to get out of. I'm hoping I'm I'm making a difference. I think those are such powerful words to end with today because every teacher, every counselor, every educator needs to hear those as the last words. Do what you're doing with love and you will leave a legacy. Wow. Wow. Thank that you was so wonderful. much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank so you so much for being with us. Conversation. Thank you so much. One day we will meet personally. I'm looking forward to that day. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you. Our listeners, did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.